have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. Prior to the hearing of our passage this morning, our choir has so beautifully led us in what is one of the most powerful Christmas songs filled with uh, pathos, filled with emotion, filled with the weight of what it's like to face Christmas realistically with the challenges of the curves and circumstances of life that might come your way. I heard the bells on Christmas Day is a powerful song, especially when you know the very background of the song. It's based upon the lyrics from a poem poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. 1863, his wife of 18 years is tragically killed in a fire. His son, uh, against his wishes, joins the union calls, is uh, wounded in battle, and comes back around this time, and the emotions and uh, challenges of life go into the very words that we have heard so beautifully sung this morning and last night and Friday night at Candlelight. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fell, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. About 1900 years before Longfellow would would pen this poem that we have heard sung for us. We heard an original Christmas composition of peace. Uh, We know it from the Latin phrase of nunc dimittis. It is the first few words of Simeon's song, a song of peace as the servant of God looks upon the Prince of Peace in his hands, the long-awaited Messiah, and his words cannot be contained only by prose, but he must lift up his voice in song that the one who he has longed to see is now in his hands, the one who will be the hope and consolation of Israel and the hope of all nations he is able to praise in his own sight. Now before we get to the song of Simeon, we hear the context of Mary and Joseph as they come there to the temple. I want you to see in the verses of 21 through 24, this context of Joseph and Mary as a faithful portrait of parents. A portrait of faithful parents. Again, just be reminded of this context that comes to us prior to the song of Simeon. And at the end of eight days, verse 21 of Luke chapter 2, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. After the manger... After the cradle of Christmas, what is the first portrait that we discover of Mary and Joseph? 
I mean, you can imagine them reeling with excitement and doubt and misunderstanding and all of the infinite questions that they would have had of what it's like to, to be as Joseph, the adoptive parent of the Son of God and Mary, as she has carried now the Christ child. And now she must raise him to hear him cry and to, to nurse him all of the humanity of the original Christmas story that we oftentimes sanitize out of it. Uh, what what uh, rule book, what uh, you know, guidance would Mary have had for all of the questions that she might have had? I doubt in Mary's copy of what to expect when you're expecting that there was a chapter on disciplining the Son of God. What, what, where would Mary turn? I mean, what kind of uh, analogy would she have? And so when there are infinite questions, what do Mary and Joseph go back to? What is the foundation of what they're going to do post the manger? And we discover it here. They are going to be parents who not only know the Word of God, but they are going to live out obediently the Word of God. The two first acts after the manger or first the circumcision of their son Jesus. The background of this is Leviticus chapter 12, not only for the circumcision, but also for Mary's act of purification. Now we see in circumcision this way of identifying Jesus uh, with his people, with the ethnic and religious heritage that Jesus is going to be raised in as a Jewish child and a Jewish man. The act of circumcision is not an act that makes him a part of Israel, but it is a public act that identifies him for all to see. It is a semblance of what we in this New Testament age know as baptism. In the Old Testament, we see this as God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to give you a sign of the covenant. That sign of the covenant circumcising a child did not then bring them into the true Israel. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 4, that it was faith that preceded the act of obedience that Abraham had of circumcision. And so Joseph and Mary, as they're identifying their son with his uh, Jewish heritage and the religion in which they're going to raise him in, that first act is an act of circumcision. The second, act, the, the second act is the act of Mary's purification. Again, Leviticus chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, the backdrop for what Mary is doing here. She is to bring sacrifices to the priest 40 days after her birth of her first child. There's two options that one would have for this rite of purification. One is to bring a, a, a lamb under a year old. This would be the, the, the regal option of sacrifice. Another was to bring two turtle doves and two pigeons for the burnt offering and the sin offering. This would have been the avenue of the rest of the poverty stricken of that day that could not afford the act of sacrifice. They come not with the best that they could have. They come with what they can afford. They don't bring the, the sacrifice of the 1%, but they bring the sacrifice of the 99%. It is a wonderful reminder embedded in what is often a very skippable passage in Jesus's life, that the type of Messiah that Jesus is going to be is one who can relate not to just those that were born with a silver spoon in their mouth, but to all, regardless of socioeconomic background. 
Luke's gospel continues with this theme. The sixth chapter of Luke's gospel comes to the Sermon on the Plain. And Jesus' words are, blessed are the poor. The 16th chapter of Luke's gospel, there's this wonderfully unique parable of Lazarus and the rich man. It's this parable of reversals of the poor man inheriting the kingdom and the rich man descending into hell. It is a reversal of expectations, and so it is with the coming of Jesus. Even the sacrifices that these parents are making here uh, identify Jesus with the outcast, identify Jesus with the poor because he is going to be a savior for all of mankind. Now, embedded in these sacrificial offerings, embedded in their obedience to the book of the law, we discover what really is a wonderful portrait of what we are called to be as parents or grandparents, just what we're called to be as believers. Notice that Mary and Jesus, or Mary and Joseph are not just hearers of the word of God, but they are doers of the word of God. They not only allow the word of Leviticus to be their backdrop, but it is their foreground of how they're going to raise their son in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. This is his firm foundation, their obedience to the word of God. It's a helpful reminder, not just for parents, not just grandparents, but it is a helpful reminder for all of us that are here that we are called to follow the example of Joseph and Mary to be not just those who know intellectually the word of God, but actually do and implement the word of God in our life. On January the 1st, the majority of you will be gathered around uh, that afternoon and that evening uh, televisions. Maybe some of you are going to travel. You're going to see the BCS playoff games. And you're going to watch Clemson and Oklahoma and Georgia and Alabama, and they're going to play. And you know that even right now, there's rigorous preparation that goes into those uh, players getting ready for the game. For those of you that played football, you know that one of the unique aspects of football, while you could watch yourself swing in baseball, you can see your shot in basketball, there's a tremendous amount of preparation that goes on in the field house for football players watching film, going over plays, preparation, study that goes in to the game plan that is going to be executed on that Saturday or as what's coming before us on January the first. Now, could you imagine the team that studies the plays, that watches the film, and the coach comes in to, to give that kind of that, that pep talk before he, he leads them out on the field, and then somebody stands up and says, you know, coach, uh, we, we would rather kind of watch some more film. Coach, thanks for the pep talk, but, but we've, I'm, not, I'm not really sure that we have completely conquered the playbook. And, I, you know, you really didn't tell us where the playbook came from. I don't know about all the composition of the playbook that I need to know. I don't know all the different incarnations of the playbook. What if this happens or what if that happens? We don't know exactly everything that needs to happen. Now, all of the study that goes on in the field house, all of the study that goes on in, in the classroom, it leads to one place and one reason, and that is for those players to go out into the field and to execute what they have hidden in their heart, to live it out on Saturday, on January the 1st. It's a temptation, isn't it? 
It's a temptation for us to be hearers of the word and allow the hearing of the word to never lead to the doing of the word. It's a temptation for us to spend our time, even in the name of growing in our faith, to wholly huddle up, never leave in the field house to play the game in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our home. Joseph and Mary, they know the playbook, but what we discover them doing is, is executing the plays. What they're doing is living out the Word of God as they now parent the Word of God incarnate, the Word in flesh. I don't know about you parents, but it is a holy responsibility that all of us need to be reminded of. If you're here and you're parenting children, if you're a grandparent and you're helping care for your children and you're in close proximity, it's always a helpful reminder for us that are here this morning that our children will most often come to value down the road what we prioritize on the road of their upbringing. It's important for you to see that Joseph and Mary, what they're doing here is that they are valuing down the road of Jesus' life here. They, they know that Jesus is going to value down the road what they are prioritizing on the road of their upbringing. Now, we do need to say most often, even the very familiar proverb to us, Proverb 22, verse 6, is not a promise that always comes true. But it is a proverb that most of the time occurs in the life of a faith family. Train up your child in the way that he should go. Train up your child in the way that she should go. And even when he is old, even when she is old, they will not depart from it. What is this proverb saying? What this proverb is saying is that our children will most often come to value down the road what we prioritize on the road of their upbringing. Mom, dads, grandparents, what are you prioritizing on the road? That down the road, your children will come to value. You see, oftentimes, we prioritize second-rate causes, third-rate causes. And we're surprised when our children don't give allegiance to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Notice with me Joseph and Mary, a portrait of faithful parents, but also notice with me Simeon, a portrait of a faithful servant. We've heard it read for us beautifully from the message paraphrase of the Bible. I just remind you of Simeon's song again this morning, starting in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem, his name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, he begins to, begins to sing, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. 
And then in verse 33, his father and his mother, Joseph and Mary, they marveled at what was said about their son Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And then verse 35, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Here we have Simeon in this wonderful picture post the manger. It's skippable. It's easy for us to miss it and to miss the very message of what Simeon's song continues to sing to us today. Simeon and Anna are the two characters that are right after the manger scene. And in many ways, they have many commonalities. This morning, we focus just on Simeon. Simeon has more life in the rearview mirror than he does in the road ahead of him. He's seen a lot of things happen, and there's one promise that the Holy Spirit has said to him that, that when he comes to the end of his life, that he will not move from the dusk of life to the night of life and eternity before him without seeing with his own eyes the, the one promised Messiah. And so he's a man of the adjectives of righteous and devout. He is one that has held on to this promise and has longed to see, longed to hold the Messiah in his own hands. And as Simeon walks into the temple led by the Holy Spirit and sees this anxious Mary, this nervous adoptive father by the name of Joseph, we can imagine all of their lives just coming to this point. Mary, a little nervous. This man in his frailty is going to hold her child as a, as a mother often is overprotective of that first child. Can, can he hold? my son. And as he looks at the son, he begins to sing the song connecting this one, this Jesus Christ, to what has come before in the Old Testament. And his song is one that bridges the Old Testament to the fulfillment in the New Testament. He is the consolation of Israel. What in the world does that mean? In Genesis chapter 12, where God promises that he is going to bless this fatherless dad by the name of Abraham by allowing his lineage to go out and to be a light to all of the nations. We've wondered, how is that going to happen? Abraham has a child with Sarah. Their, their lineage grows. They, they grow through slavery in Egypt and the exodus out of Egypt. They combine together in this monarchy they're faithless at times, disobedient oftentimes. God divides the kingdom. They're disobedient and they're dispersed all throughout. It seems that the light to the nations has been a light that has been dimmed by the nations. What seems to be flickering is gone at the end of Malachi. And then we have Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel and Mark's gospel and John's gospel that, that speak of the one true Israel. The one who will be faithful. The one who will not only be the consolation of Israel and would draw all who would trust him into his family, but more than that, that he will be a light to all of the nations. That to anyone and to everyone who would trust him, they could know him as Savior 
and as Lord. This is a song that Simeon had to sing. And this is a song that we're still called to sing. And as Simeon begins to stop singing, we can imagine Simeon's eyes and Mary's eyes catch. I don't know if Mary saw in Simeon's eyes what we hear in these words, the, the very pathos of these words. See, it is very tempting at Christmas. To keep Jesus as this cute, cuddly little baby. It's, it's very easy for us to sanitize the manger story, but Simeon does not allow that whatsoever. Simeon looks at this mother, this one who has held her child and has, this child has grown in her and now she is celebrating his life. And this is what Simeon says. This child, your child, will cause the falling and the rising of Israel. He will be spoken against. People's thoughts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. You see, what is Simeon doing here? He is, he is reminding us that the Christmas story leads to the Easter story. He is reminding the mother of Jesus, Mary, that the cloths that now swaddle her baby will be similar to the cloths that will cover her son as he is dead upon a cruel, coarse Roman cross. That his purpose is not for us just to look at as a great teacher. His purpose is not for us just to look back at and to say, what an inspiration. But as Simeon is saying this to Mary, he is saying, Mary, your heart will be crushed because your son will be rejected. Your son will be reviled. Your son will die a sacrificial death. And there are some in this room that have gone through the unspeakable grief a grief that only a mother can truly know that when you stand in that funeral home and you grieve the passing of your own son, you grieve the passing of your own daughter, here is Simeon saying to this mother, this will be a pain that you will know. Why? Because your son, the infinite second person of the Trinity has now become finite so that finite humanity can live for an eternity with a holy God. Do you, do you know what Simeon is doing? Simeon is simultaneously bowing before the manger while kneeling before the cross. He is simultaneously holding together these two pillars of the Christian story. Christ in flesh, God among us, and the death, burial, and resurrection of our risen Lord and Savior. Christmas and Easter, they mix together and they meet in the song of Simeon. And he is bowing before the manger while kneeling before the cross. He sees in this cute, cuddly Christ child, that cruel, coarse Roman cross in the foreground. And he says, I, I have peace because I've held in my hands the Prince of Peace. And so my question to you, Dawson, this morning is, is, is do you know this peace? My question to you this morning is, is no matter the circumstances of life, no matter the challenges of life, no matter the unexpected curves that life might 
uh, face that you might face in life? Do you know this Prince of Peace? The details are a little elusive to me. I remember maybe I was nine, maybe I was ten, wanting to stay up. To be able to watch what my mom would watch when I was with her. To be able to watch what my dad and my stepmother would would watch when I was with them. I would hear these things of Paul Schaefer and David Letterman. And I just thought, boy, I've got to watch this. They would laugh at the jokes. And so I stayed up one Friday night. It was was at the time where they were sort of the, the first reincarnation of the Batman movies. Michael Keaton's playing Batman. Jack Nicholson is playing the Joker. David Letterman is interviewing Jack Nicholson. He's sort of at the apex of his popularity. First row right there for all the Lakers games. Great movies that he's been in and would be in right there at the height and mountaintop of his popularity. And I remember Letterman asking him a question, what, what do you fear? And I was sort of was asking that as, as the Joker, what, what would the Joker fear? And at least in my 10-year-old mind, as I heard him answer the question, well, I'll tell you one thing I fear is death. Now, as Christians, we don't frolic to funerals. We're not those that are preoccupied. All of us have a sense of anxiety of the unknown. But when he was speaking, it was as if for the first time in my life, I had considered my mortality as a 10-year-old. That like this man who has everything in life really doesn't have a framework to be able to consider what happens after life. He has everything. He has the prestige of a Hollywood community. He's got the popularity of being able to be interviewed by David Letterman. But when it comes to the things that are utmost of importance, he doesn't have the capacity to be able to say, even in the midst of anxiety, even in the midst of fear, even in the midst of not even knowing exactly how that's going to happen, I have peace. And I wonder if you're here. And if you were to be honest this morning, you're not really sure if you have peace. I'm not talking about just the unknown of when might be the time of your death. I'm talking about the unknown of whatever life might bring you this week. Do you, do you know how Simeon knew peace when he comes to the end of his life? He knows that peace because he is bowing before the manger while he is kneeling before the cross. And you too can know not just peace theoretically, but peace in the person of Jesus Christ in the midst of any circumstance that you might face, in the midst of any challenge that you might face, in the midst of any change that might come to you, that that this peace will sustain you at the end of your life. It will sustain you in the midst of the valleys of your life, and it will sustain you when you face the surprising curves of life. I'm going to tell you the secret that Simeon knew. He held the Prince of Peace in his hands. And today, you can hold him in your heart. If you would kneel before the manger while bowing before the cross. Let us pray.